The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. Fifty years ago, there were two civil rights marches from Selma to Montgomery, organized by Martin Luther King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference. They were met by violent resistance, including two deaths. The outrage about the brutality against these marchers was part of the impetus to finally pass the 1965 Voting Rights Act. While we have been seeing a dramatic erosion in voting rights and an explosion of anger about the disproportionate use of police violence against blacks, a march was organized this summer to commemorate those days 50 years ago. This time the picture was different. An 860-mile march was organized from Selma to Washington, D.C., and people of all kinds gathered to support the marches, including the women's groups, unions, environmentalists, and religious organizations. In the mix was a Torah, the holy book of the Jews, which was carried the whole march by rabbis, Jews, and non-Jews alike. Why was a Torah marching to Washington? Let's ask Rabbi Seth Limmer, the originator of the idea, and a social activist reform rabbi, calling for oneness and accountability, two of the three commitments of an interrevolutionary. Rabbi Limmer went to the march not just to help transform others, but to be transformed himself. Let's hear all about it. And now... Here's Beth. Hi, welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio. Well, I'm very excited because as you know, if you've been listening to our show, we've had all kinds of religious people on who are not being the stereotype religious people who are like, let's kill each other and we're better than you are. But we've had some marvelous people like Sister Simone Campbell, a Catholic nun who was one of the nuns who was censured by the Catholic Church, <laughs> by the way, under the old regime, for being really into social justice and oneness. And we've interviewed Catherine Hayhoe, who is an evangelical uh, climate scientist. I mean, she's an evangelical, and she is a climate scientist, and she's reaching out into that community saying, yes, climate change is real, and we have to do something about it. And and we had Dr. Sakina Yakubi, who is a Muslim woman who, under the Taliban, uh, opened uh, 80 underground schools in Afghanistan and has gone on to uh, help millions of women and, uh, well, has given health care to millions of Afghans, but specifically had brought... Um, education to women. So we're seeing a lot of people in the religious movement who are coming from their hearts and not from some kind of outdated dogma. And I was really looking for a rabbi. I wanted a rabbi. Well, I have to tell you, I'm a little prejudiced because I was born Jewish, although I am not, uh, you know, I don't practice the Jewish faith. I have my own spirituality. But I knew there was a social activist uh, thread in Judaism, and I was so delighted when I read about Rabbi Seth Limmer, who was talking about bringing this Torah. The Torah is the, you know, 
the five books of Moses, the holy book of uh, the Jews, uh, bringing it to this march. And I said, oh, my God, I've got to talk to this guy. What's he doing? <laughs> so <laughs> I'm so happy that we have him here now that the march ended in mid-September. He is with us, and he's going to be talking about, I want to know all about him and his life and how he got there, and I also want to know about this march. But in the meantime, as we always do, we are going to have some words from James on the news of the inner revolution. Now, I have to warn you about something. Again, this show is being pre-recorded, so we're not going to give you up-to-the-minute news because we can't because it's not up-to-the-minute. We are on pre-record, but we are bringing you some timeless news. Okay, take it away, James. Yes, uh, our first news item is from one of our listeners, Chris, in California, and this is from the website onemillionwomen.com. One Million Women, a movement of strong, inspirational women and girls acting on climate change by leading low-carbon lives. One Million Women is their name and their goal. Building a movement of women and girls acting on climate change by leading low-carbon lives. Led by Natalie Isaacs since 2006, she states that if one million women all cut one ton each of carbon pollution, it would equal one million tons of carbon dioxide. This is the equivalent of growing a new forest of 5 million trees. On the 1 Million Women website, one is guided through ways to live a low-carbon life and cut CO2, carbon dioxide, in the process. They ask you to kickstart your low-carbon life by taking their carbon challenge and making your personal goal to cut as much, a minimum of one ton, of CO2 pollution from your daily life within a year. As of September the 21st, 2015, they have 220,724 members. How we live is a key solution to the climate crisis, states Natalie Isaacs, the founder. We're not waiting for governments. There's no time to waste. We are building a movement of women, so please join us. So I love this story. They're in Australia, aren't they? Yes, and they're worldwide. And they're worldwide. See, I love this. Now, of course, we know that we have to make the government act, but you see, the inner revolution is all about us changing ourselves and changing our world. And it's about the three commitments of the inner revolutionary is to live out of a place of oneness, accountability, and mutual support. And this story is so great because we're accountable too. We can't just go around saying, oh, it's the industry, it's the government. You know, we can do something. James, have you dared to take a look at that test, the carbon challenge? I bet you haven't. I've been meaning to. Yeah, right. Me too. I've been meaning to, too. So there it is. <laughs> I, will, I will do it. I, I've been All right. Very, you do that. The past few days. Then you could sign up as one of the one million women. Okay. <laughs> In your name. <laughs> right. Okay. Take it away. <clears throat> okay. Next. Uh, from another one of our listeners, Tracy in Arizona. This is from National Public Radio on September the 16th. In defiance of the church, some Catholic women seek priesthood. Sunday morning services at St. Mary Magdalene Community in Drexel Hills, Pennsylvania, look different from a typical Roman Catholic Mass. The homily is interactive. There's gluten-free communion bread. (laughs) like that. (laughs) And the priest is a woman. Carol Johnson calls herself a priest, but technically she was excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. That happened automatically in uh, 2011 when she was ordained by the group Roman Catholic Women Priests. The organization acknowledges that it's violating church requirements, but says the ban on female priests is unjust. 
So far, the group has ordained 188 women around the world. Uh, says Johnson, I had a decision to make. Am I going to follow the Spirit of God and do what God asks no matter what the cost, or am I going to follow a rule? When Pope Francis visits Philadelphia, which is currently taking place, the group Women's Ordination Worldwide holds its annual conference there. Organizers expect hundreds of activists who want the Catholic Church to ordain women to attend. You know, we had a story about Radical Grace, the film about uh, the American nuns who were being censured for being too into social justice and not into doctrine. One of those three nuns who was featured in it was Sister Simone, who we, uh, uh, we interviewed. But another one was Chris, uh, Sister Chris Gank, who was showing that women were very active and were, she thinks, were bishops in the old days of the church and that this, uh, you know, smacking down on women uh, activity in the church is much more recent than we think. And uh, what I love about this story is, and it brings tears from my, to my eyes, is, you know, are we going to listen to God or are we going to listen to the rules? And, uh, you know, whether you believe in God or you're religious or not, it's kind of irrelevant. It's about our hearts, our spirits, our knowing when something isn't right. And these women are standing up for what they know is right at a great cost to themselves. And I think that's very important. That's so much a part of the inner revolution where we say that we have to stand up to mindless conformity to the things that are really destructive in our world, and there are plenty of them. And the final story, James? Yes, uh, and this news item is from Creating Hope International, which was sent to us on September the 21st, uh, 2015. Uh, from uh, Dr. Sakina Yakubi, who is, is now being featured on TED Women, and talking about how I stopped the Taliban from shutting down my school. When the Taliban closed all the girls' schools in Afghanistan, Sakina Yakubi set up new schools in secret, educating thousands of women and men. In this fierce, funny talk, she tells the jaw-dropping story of two times when she was threatened to stop teaching and shares her vision for rebuilding her beloved country. You can find her talk at http colons forward slash forward slash www.ted.com forward slash talks forward slash Sakina Yakubi. <laughs> so you, you, uh, we don't really expect you to write that down. We're going to post that. You know, we interviewed Sakina in August. I think it was August 30th. You can find it on our host page. Uh, we don't only uh, interview religious people, but, you know, it's, it's so coincidental. It came up on the same show as we're interviewing uh, Rabbi Seth Limmer. And um, Sakina was fantastic. Everybody loved her. She was so courageous. She still is so courageous. She just, uh, a couple months ago, she opened up a radio station. And um, we asked her, please keep us uh, oppressed of what you're doing so that we can continue to support you. And we are going to be doing a Facebook post, so you don't have to worry about that URL at all. Um, we love Sakina. We said we were going to keep people abreast of what she's doing, and uh, we're so happy that her organization is staying in touch with us because uh, this woman is amazing and warm and wonderful, and we also have a video about her on our uh, voice, our um, voiceamerica.tv channel, Interrevolutionary TV. And as it happens, I've made a video on uh, Rabbi Seth Limmer also, where you're going to see snippets of him 
from the March, and they're just fantastic, very stirring, and uh, very inspirational. So with no further ado, I'd love to introduce you to our guest, Rabbi Seth Limmer. Hello, Seth. Hi, how are you? Oh, I'm so fine. Uh, welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio. Uh, you are obviously in a lot of good company in this world. I'd, I'd, I'd like to think so, but I'd love that company to grow. <laughs> oh, my God. So would we, which is why we're doing this show. <laughs> and, and because it seems like as the inner revolution grows, so does the counter-revolution. <laughs> so, so there's a lot to be done. So um, first of all, I guess we should explain. I'd like to, for you to explain why it was that you wanted to bring a Torah on this march. And... Um, uh, that would be a great way to start off your sharing. Sure. You know, I was, I was actually subbing on a phone call for, our national, for the National Civil Rights Leadership Conference on behalf of our reform movement, and uh, we were trying to do the work of getting local rabbis to local rallies about the Voting Rights Advancement Act. And we spent an hour talking about this very big rally that happened in Richmond in uh, in July. And at the very end, uh, the the convener of the call introduced Cornell William Brooks, the president of the NAACP, to make a brief announcement. And Cornell shared that the NAACP was launching what they were calling America's Journey for Justice. It started out as an 865-mile sojourn. I can explain later. It wound up being a 1,000-mile journey. Uh, for for justice, and he described it as an educational and awareness raising opportunity, disguised as a protest march. So I got off the <laughs> phone and thought to myself, uh, I don't think I can walk forty five days and take forty five days off in August and September to to walk with the NAACP. But I knew uh, that my colleagues in the Reform Movement of Judaism, we had been actually studying what we could do and where we could partner to address the, some of the racial injustices of our world. And this was a great opportunity, I thought, for partnership. And so I then had to go and try and sell the idea within the Reform Movement. And I was explaining uh, to this wonderful woman named Joy Friedman, who was the lead organizer of a group we call Rabbis Organizing Rabbis. And I said to her, here's the idea. You know, 45 rabbis, 45 days in a row, and marching with the NAACP. And then without any premeditation, I just heard myself saying, and instead of passing a baton from rabbi to rabbi, we should carry a Torah scroll the whole way from Selma to Washington, D.C. That, now, how, that sort of how, how heavy was, was that? Was how born. heavy was that Torah? Uh, the Torah, so uh, yeah, I didn't know, and uh, the, there were lots of jokes going around on our Facebook page about, you know, uh, Limmer, couldn't you have gotten a lighter Torah? And when the Torah, when the march made its way to Atlanta, the, the rabbi in charge for that day, Lydia Medwin, is actually based in Atlanta, and she brought the Torah home with her and weighed it on her home scale. And the funny thing is, the way she revealed it in her Facebook post, the Torah, you know, Torahs have a special cover to protect the parchment. She said the Torah with the cover weighs 20 pounds, and then she took the cover off and weighed just the cover, and that weighed 2 pounds, which meant the Torah weighs 18 pounds, which is significant because 18 in uh, Jewish yes. numerology is the symbol of life. So that's how much our Torah scroll weighs. And you still had women dragging that thing down the street. 
we had we had children we had uh <laughs> the older folks we had women and men you know we have women rabbis there are equals yeah. in in the reform movement's eyes so we had all shapes and sizes uh cornell brooks said you know we had reform jews conservative jews Presbyterians, Episcopalians, <laughs> one day a year Jews, lapsed Jews, lapsed Catholics, <laughs> atheists, agnostics, you know, black, white, brown, young, old, didn't matter. Uh, whoever wanted to turn carrying the Torah got to carry it on its way. That is so touching. It's so beautiful. And I, you see, I grew up in a world where I thought everyone was Jewish. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we are going to, shockingly, take a commercial break now. But when we come back, uh, because I have so many other questions for you, but I don't want you to get started and have to take a break. So let's take the break now, because when we come back, I want you to explain to our listeners about Reform Judaism, because you have some fantastic things about Judaism, which I find so exciting. In fact, Seth, if you had been my rabbi when I was growing up, which I have to say was a very long time ago because I'm 70. So (laughs) if you had been my rabbi, my whole life would have been different because I probably would not have left Judaism and then forged my own course. So I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing. But there's a lot for you to share, and I would love for our listeners to learn a little bit more about Reform Judaism. And I also want to know about your background. And then I also want to know about how you were transformed by this event. So thank heavens we have lots of time left. So stick around. We're going to break now. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Transform yourself and your world. Check out Beth Green's online community, TheInnerRevolution.org, where you'll find effective support to become the person you really are. Find a variety of activities, including men's, women's, and family groups, low-fee counseling, workshops, events, and free support. Subscribe to our newsletter and receive a free PDF of Beth's book, Living with Reality. Meet a group dedicated to galvanizing the inner revolution sweeping our world, all at www.TheInnerRevolution.org. I'm Beth Green, and I want to help you revolutionize yourself and our world. Take advantage of my powerful intuition in a private consultation that will amaze you. Discover my five books, three CDs of original music, School of Intuitive Counseling, upcoming workshops, trainings, and community. Sign up for my newsletter and get a free PDF of my book, Living with Reality. Tune into Inner Revolutionary TV, my channel on voiceamerica.tv. Find this and more at my website, theinnerrevolution.org. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned in to Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and co-host James Maynard. To share your questions and comments, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to Interrevolutionary Radio. Welcome back to Interrevolutionary Radio. If you tuned in late, we are interviewing Rabbi Seth Limmer, who is the head rabbi 
of a Reformed congregation in Chicago, which is a big congregation, I'm sure. And he's also the chief of some social justice organization whose name I cannot remember, um, because, and uh, with the Reformed rabbis. And he was just at the march from uh, Selma to Washington, D.C., the uh, march for, for justice. And he has so much to share about his experience. So uh, welcome back and... Take it away, uh, Seth. So tell us a little bit about Reform Judaism, because I think people don't know much about it. I mean, a lot of people know about Billy Crystal, or they see pictures of Orthodox Jews with, you know, big uh, hats on and payas, and I don't know what you'd call it, ear, ear locks. Yeah, you got and, it, both payas and ear locks. That's the Hebrew uh, and the English. Right, I'm trying to remember the English word, and long beards. When I was growing up, we didn't know the difference between... Uh, Yiddish and English. You know, they were all intertwined. <laughs> I grew up yep. in New York City. <laughs> so, so tell us a little bit about the Reform Judaism. Certainly. Uh, Reform Judaism actually started in Germany in the 1700s. I don't want to bore people to death by talking about the philosophy of Immanuel Kant, unless, like me, they were philosophy majors and they liked that stuff. <laughs> but it, basically, Reform Judaism was a Judaism born of the Enlightenment and Enlightenment times. And once society was open to include Jews, and we were no longer forcibly imposed by others to stay in shtetls, but could meet with our neighbors and go to university, there was a desire to combine Judaism with the best of what the Enlightenment education had to offer. And so it was actually not a group of rabbis, but a group of German Jews who said, wait a second, there's no reason we can't be both modern and Jewish at the same time. And there isn't a reason why, as we learn in the academy, you know, intelligent people make autonomous choices. We shouldn't do that in the religious realm as well. And so if this show is about inner revolutions, the inner revolution in Judaism started when a group of non-rabbis said, you know something, if services are meant to be meaningful and uplifting, our neighbors have an organ. We should have an organ and beautiful music. Our neighbors get to hear a sermon preached in German. And not, most of us don't understand Hebrew. We would want the, a sermon that could edify us because we understand it as opposed to be spoken in a language that we don't want. And I think probably most importantly, we're married to some intelligent people, men and women. We would like to sit together during services and not relegate women to being behind a screen or outside of the worship experience entirely. That's that's how Reform Judaism started, and as it's grown over time, and well, really wait, took just, root... Just, a, just a, a second, Seth. I just yeah. want to tell people that at that time in Orthodox Judaism, women were upstairs, outside, behind a screen. This is kind of the history, because many uh, th th people may not know that. And that was something, of course, that has changed in some parts of Judaism over the years. But there yeah. was a lot of discrimination against women in the traditional Jewish religion. So Which still continues away. to this day in Israel in the ultra-Orthodox world and in those yes. pockets in America where it exists. No, so, so, so reform, the Reform Judaism, as it took root in America, uh, really grew into a liberal form of Judaism that marched under the banner of choice through knowledge, that we were all capable of making our own religious choices. It's actually, the, the, the Jewish tradition of arguing is a lot longer than the Jewish tradition <laughs> of uh, legal decisions. And, and, and we should 
learn what we need to know to make informed choices, and people can make different choices about have to be Jewish and still be part of a community. And I think that liberal approach to religion and a desire not to separate from the modern world, but to be able to learn from outside the Jewish tradition and be nourished from within is really what feeds us. And I think because we reform movement has always been so connected with our neighbors here in America is part of the reason why we have, amongst all the movements of Judaism, always been on the forefront of all the justice work that's happened in America because we feel a profound sense of connection uh, to and responsibility for our neighbors. Well, and I think the first time there were ever any women rabbis was in the reform movement. It spilled over to the conservative movement much later. Where yes. The conservative Judaism was what I was brought in, up in, where you had uh, the cantor, by the way, I love the music, the traditional Jewish music. That was the one thing I could never forgive the Reformed Jews <laughs> to taking away my beautiful liturgical music. But for the rest of it, uh, you know, thank God you didn't make me a woman and so on. I, I mean, I grew up in, uh, up in a religion, religion where I felt completely disenfranchised and couldn't stand it and didn't want to go, didn't want to participate. So I think that's incredible. And the other thing, you know, that you started, that this movement started way back in the 19th century, and we're still trying to catch up with that. <laughs> so many of us, right, you know, haven't gotten it yet. And, you know, the other thing that's so fantastic about this is you're explaining it, Seth, because I didn't know much about Reform Judaism either. I just left Judaism and, you know, listened to God. I figured, you know, if I listen to God, that's better. Um, but what I also really appreciated in what you were sharing is that, you know, choice, we believe in combining spirituality and common sense. And because <laughs> God once told me, because I, I hear this voice of God speaking to me, God told me that we should make all decisions at the intersection of intuition, experience, observation, and common sense. And I love that about your movement. I mean, it's, it sounds like you do that. Well, you know, we believe that Jewish tradition has a tremendous amount to offer, to teach us, I think, with which to challenge us about our responsibilities to the world. But it's long been our point of view that the tradition gets a vote, but not a veto. And our own humanity and experience needs to play a role in our decisions, especially our religious decisions. I love that, a vote, but not a veto. So tell me how you happen to become so social activist. Now, did you grow up in a reform family? Uh, what's your background? Sure. I grew up in a uh, very religious Reformed Jewish family. At different points in time, each of my parents, uh, my father, and then later on my mother were president of my synagogue, serving five-year terms. And mm. so Judaism was a huge part of my household, but in the Reformed Jewish tradition. So I, um, I'm a product of, and some would argue, poster child for our Reform <laughs> movement. And, and our, our synagogue growing up was uh, led by Rabbi Jerome Davidson, who remains a, a close friend and family friend to all of us and a teacher of mine. And he, in justice, was a key part of his rabbinate, and he made sure as a part of our congregation as well. I would say that the earliest experience I had was... I think it's around 1980, but Wikipedia will prove me right or wrong, uh, when there was a terrible crisis of uh, people from Vietnam being stranded on boats and washing mm -hmm. up on shores and potentially yeah. dying. 
And uh, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, based in New York, was trying to help um, these Vietnamese refugees uh, find refuge here in America and working with congregations. So our rabbi got up on the Bema one Friday night and said, we're going to sponsor this family through Hyas. We're going to do this as a congregation. We'll need people to cook meals. We'll need people to help find jobs. We'll need people to do English teaching. And we need a family to host them until they find permanent housing. And my parents volunteered. So for about six months, the Latan family uh, came to live with us, none of them speaking a word of English. Uh, Latan was the father. He was the father of ten children, nine sons and one girl. Only, only five of the sons were with him at first. The rest came later. And I learned firsthand that what Judaism means is you take care of other people who are in need. And uh, that's, that was a, a formative experience for me. I think I was all of seven years old when it happened in my house. <laughs> gave way from hamburgers and hot dogs and chicken parm <laughs> and brisket to all sorts of smells and spices I never knew before. And frankly, as a seven-year-old, I didn't like. And, you know, people who looked different and didn't speak my language, but now were in my house every day. Whether, whatever I was trying to do, they were there. And, and uh, it was a remarkable experience. Luckily, we're still very close with the Latan family who have lived the American dream of the immigration story in a wonderful way. And that's, that, that's sort of the, the root of it for me. You know, I take seriously the notion that we celebrate at Passover and we learn about in the book of Exodus that the, the lesson we Jews are meant to draw from having been uh, slaves in Egypt and then being liberated is not that we are free to do whatever we want, but rather we were liberated from serving Pharaoh so that we might serve God. And our way of serving God is to make sure that no one ever feels oppressed the way we were oppressed by Pharaoh. To me, that's the fundamental Jewish teaching. It's at the core of what remains our most popular holiday, and that's a lot of the reason why I became a rabbi. Oh, you know, that I feel so much affinity for uh, what you're saying. And by the way, if there's any, we have any listeners who don't believe in any kind of higher power, that's fine. I don't care. Higher power, higher consciousness, God, to me, it's Buddha. It's all the same thing. It's like that conscience and that consciousness that's higher than the one that we typically walk away around with, which is our egos telling us that we should do for number one. It's, it's that higher calling to serve all, which is really what I think that spirituality and religion is all about and what the inner revolution is all about and what we all need. And I'm so happy you know, to hear that that experience didn't turn you the other way because some kids would have come out of that experience and said, I so resented those six kids, ten kids, whatever it was, and mm-hmm. they came into my house and they messed me up and I, you know, ruined my life and now I hate everybody. But seriously. Yeah, I mean, that's, no, you're right. And, I mean, did you have an internal struggle around that or, or was it a pretty easy passage? Uh, no, it was a pretty easy passage, frankly. You know, it's one of those things I don't think I even realized at, at the time, but it was just, you know, looking back at the pieces that make you, if you appreciate them all in the moment, you're probably so hyper-aware <laughs> you need less <laughs> caffeine. Uh, so you know, it, it par- a parallel is that uh, my both of my daughters wanted to go with me on the second leg of the march when I went back to walk the Torah scroll into Washington, D.C. Unfortunately, my older daughter, Rosie, had a, a school trip that she couldn't get out of this three-day camping trip. But my younger daughter, Lily, came with me. And I'm not sure what she experienced on that trip. But I do know that looking, A, she wanted to go, and B, looking back, she'll figure out what it meant to her. Um, <laughs> what that, she you know, experienced. That, that she went there. And I think that's the kind of faith I have to have in them, that they'll figure it out over time. 
Well, one of the things that I saw from the pictures, it looked like there were so many people of different races and different backgrounds that she had a positive experience of that. Um, that's something you definitely gave her. A lot of people have very terrible experiences of multiculturalism in many races. You know, what you're talking about, about the Latans, you know, it makes me think, of course, about the refugees who are flooding into Europe and who are mm-hmm. going to be coming to the United States, too. This, you know, from Syria and the Middle East. And the um, the mix in people, some really welcoming them and, you know, having that humanitarian response and others freaking out and trying to keep them out. And so much of the way that those immigrants are going to feel depends on how they're received. You know, yep. when, pe- when people receive you with open arms, you tend to relax and feel happy. And when people start uh, creating discriminatory laws against you, people tend to get strident and become more militant against you. And, before you- and then you have an excuse to become even more racist than you were before. And... Isn't that so? And this is what I see happening. Um, you know, this is one of the sad situations that we, uh, we're still facing in our own country. And um, so when you have an experience of multi-race, multicultural, that's positive, where people are coming together and supporting one another, you tend to think of people as, from other cultures as a contribution to you rather than as a threat. That would be my hope. <laughs> But we'll have to ask Lily. Exactly. So, so how did you feel, I mean, how received were you uh, by the Reformed uh, Jewish community? Did, was it a hard sell to participate in this march? No. That, that's really one of the most gratifying pieces of all of this. Uh, there was a little bit of trepidation. Uh, the, the march went from August 1st to September 15th, um, and September 14th is Rosh Hashanah, our Jewish New Year, when we knew no rabbis would be able to march. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that time of year is usually when rabbis do one of three things, reform rabbis. They are either volunteering at Jewish summer camps, they are working on their high holiday sermons, or they are taking vacation. And so we knew it was the mm. worst time of year to get rabbis to commit to something. And so I sent out an initial email a few days after learning about the march and getting all of our institutional partners lined up to 15 rabbis. And I sent it out on a Friday, and our internal agreement was if 10 of them by Monday said they would do it, we would launch this uh, larger. And if fewer than 10 said that they would do it, we wouldn't have enough energy. If the most committed couldn't do it, we weren't going to bother. So I sent out an email on Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock, hoping for the best, went around, did a little greet of people in the building on Friday afternoon, and by the time I got back to my desk at 3.20, I had 15 yes responses. (laughs) That's all it took. So we we got all the inner workings together. We reached out to the NAACP, made sure that our gesture would be received as a term of support and not as anything else. That's how it was intended. We worked everything out with them. We got our own internal stuff together, and the following Monday, sent out an invitation to all 1,800 Reform rabbis in America to join the march. By the end, We sent that out Monday morning at 9 o'clock. By Monday evening at 5 o'clock, we had over 100 people signed up. That's fantastic. And by the end of the march, we had over 200 Reform rabbis march from Selma for at least one day uh, as the America's Journey for Justice made its way from Selma to Washington, D.C., now, I know there were people from other religions there, too. Where Did you have conservative rabbis or orthodox rabbis there? Not that I know of. 
You know, oh, we, 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 you know, we, we partnered in this march, and I, I wasn't the main person. We had uh, some wonderful people who did all the organizational work to help the rabbis in getting there and sign them up. Uh, but there may have been plenty of other people who went, but it wasn't. You know, we weren't keeping track. We were just trying to keep track of our rabbis for a couple reasons. I'll get back to, um, and uh, we weren't keeping tabs on everyone else who marched. The NAACP might know the answer to that question, but I don't. Okay, wonderful. Well, we have one more commercial break that we're going to take right now. But when we come back, I'd like our guest, uh, Rabbi Seth Limmer, to talk to us about the relationship between blacks and Jews at this time in history and how you were impacted by this march. So stick around because there's more to come. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. I'm Beth Green, and I want to help you revolutionize yourself and our world. Take advantage of my powerful intuition in a private consultation that will amaze you. Discover my five books, three CDs of original music, school of intuitive counseling, upcoming workshops, trainings, and community. Sign up for my newsletter and get a free PDF of my book, Living with Reality. Tune into Inner Revolutionary TV, my channel on voiceamerica.tv. Find this and more at my website, theinnerrevolution.org. Transform yourself and your world. Check out Beth Green's online community, theinnerrevolution.org, where you'll find effective support to become the person you really are. Find a variety of activities, including men's, women's, and family groups, low-fee counseling, workshops, events, and free support. Subscribe to our newsletter and receive a free PDF of Beth's book, Living with Reality. Meet a group dedicated to galvanizing the inner revolution sweeping our world, all at www.theinnerrevolution.org. Be part of the inner revolution sweeping the planet. Tune into Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green on the Voice America Variety Channel. And now, also enjoy Beth's channel, Inner Revolutionary TV, on voiceamerica.tv. See inspiring videos about our guests and the inner revolution. Hear commentaries that will help clarify our time. And watch interviews of people who will matter to you. Think outside the box. Watch Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. You're tuned in to Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and co-host James Maynard. To share your questions and comments, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to Inner Revolutionary Radio. Welcome back to Inner Revolutionary Radio. I'm your host, Beth Green, and today I'm having what I find a fascinating conversation with Rabbi Seth Limmer, the head rabbi of the Chicago... Chicago-Sinai Congregation. Thank you! You're See, he's, he's After uh, 40 minutes with me, he knows now that my memory isn't what it used to be. Actually, it is what it used to be. I never had one. So, um, and he has been very much engaged with social justice movements and the reform uh, Judaism, and he's been bringing us up to date. A lot of people don't know anything about Reform Judaism, and I knew not as you know not that much either. Uh, even though I was born into a Jewish household, and now um, you know, having come back from the march 
of the March for Justice, uh, you know, the Civil Rights March was commemorating the Civil Rights Marches of 50 years ago, which were bloody. Uh, You know, it was fantastic to see the support, the number of different organizations who came together to really support voting rights, which have been slipping away, and uh, civil rights. Um, But I would like to ask Seth to talk a little bit about the relationship between blacks and Jews. And, you know, some of you know I was a social activist until my mid-30s, and I was very involved in the anti-war movement and... um, in the Ban the Bomb movement and the women's movement and the workplace organizing movement and the tenants' rights movement. And, uh, you know, pretty much I was just at the other end of the civil rights movement when I became active. But I, I was involved with, the, with that, too, as it was emerging. And I had seen a lot of unity between Jewish activists and black activists in those earlier days. And when... The, um, you know, the movement changed and there was a lot of antagonism. I'm not blaming anybody. I'm just saying there was what I saw, a lot of antagonism in neighborhoods, in the movement between blacks and Jews. And so it did my heart a lot of good to see uh, Seth walking with a Torah in the, uh, you know, in a sea of black and white people marching and, you know, it gave me a lot of hope because, um, you know, we can't, we can't compete with our oppressions. We need to find the unity that our pain brings us, that we all have pain and we've all had difficulties that we need to come together to resolve. So I would love for uh, Rabbi Limit to tell us what he's seeing in the black and Jewish movements today. Well, I think... What we saw before the march was a need, especially in my generation of rabbis and younger, to recapture that partnership of the past. There are some famous, well, I don't know how famous, but they're famous to rabbis, images probably. Uh, the most moving one is of the third march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, uh, the one with Dr. King that ultimately did make its way to Montgomery, yeah. where a few people over to his right is Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, and a few people over to his left is Rabbi Maurice Eisendrath, who is president of the Reform Movement, carrying a Torah scroll. And these are these are images which, to uh, a lot of my colleagues, are the reasons why we became rabbis, to take our Torah out into the streets, to fight for justice, to work with all kinds of partners, um, and without getting into an etiology of reasons, because I'm a rabbi, not a historian of civil <laughs> rights history, uh, you know, that the relationship between the black community and the Jewish community is nowhere near as close as it was in the, in the late 60s in particular. And, and so... We were, the good news is that in the reform movement on a national level, we've always had very close connections with the NAACP, which uh, one of its presidents was Kibbe Kaplan, who was a reform Jew uh, uh, many years ago, and uh, Hillary Shelton, and, uh, and first Rabbi David Saperstein, and then Rabbi Jonah Pesner, who direct our religious action center, our, our advocacy base in D.C., have always been close, and, and Rabbi Saperstein was on the board of the NAACP for years, but it never really transcended some of those institutions friendships in a way that boiled down. And, and part of what we wanted to 
do when we sat down about six months ago at our annual uh, meeting of rabbis who were trying to figure out the justice agenda, we realized that what we wanted to do was to address issues of, of race and racism that were emerging in America. And we realized that what we really needed to do was not just introspection um, and learning about ourselves, but we needed to do a search for partners. And so we started doing that, and we're in the midst of that when the opportunity to to march with um, and in support of the NAACP came along. And I will tell you one of the more gratifying things about the march is not just that 200 rabbis went, but that in order to march, once you realize that so many people wanted to go, we figured we might as well get something out of it. <laughs> we asked every rabbi who marched to commit to doing two things. One was to give a high holiday sermon about race and racism in America so that their congregation would be brought in on the experience. And mm-hmm. the second was to commit to doing work with the local black community and not just to make this about flying in to take part in something national and to have a powerful day marching, but to take that march back home and do local work as well. And so for me, the real outgrowth of this march in the Jewish community will be all that work to which rabbis committed, um, uh, I guess, by the time this airs, it will be after after our high yeah. holidays, and that work will that work will officially start. Uh, and then the other piece is there's no doubt, having spent time with many people in the NAACP leadership and the, and people like Aaron Mayer of the Sierra Club, that this has sort of kickstarted in a way an opportunity for the Reformed Jewish world and and the leadership in the Black world to come back together and recapture that sense of partnership that we had in the 60s, and and again fight together for justice and do all the things that are needed today. Well, a lot of people would say that the NAACP is kind of a very moderate, to put it mildly, mm-hmm. a black organization. And, um, you know, w- did you meet uh, more militant black people? Was there a chance to kind of build some bridges there as well? You know, we have a couple of, I have a couple of colleagues and good friends who are rabbis in St. Louis and who are out on the front lines in Ferguson from the very first day. And and they actually caught a little bit of heat from some of their local partners in that work for partnering with the NAACP, um, which I think was probably called different names for moderate by, 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 right. by that I'm not community using the word in, in Ferguson. Um, right. You know... I think part of what we're trying to figure out is who the vast width of our partners are, but there's no doubt, and one of the things I so admire about the NAACP, there's no doubt that having a a national organization with a tremendously strong base, as the NAACP does, that it's a remarkably important way to move what will ultimately be major legislative pieces. I think a lot of the racial injustice we're seeing in this country is structural racial injustice, um, I would argue, intentionally put into place by predominantly white politicians to keep the black community down in America. And the only way really to fix a lot of it is going to be through legislation. And in order for that legislation to happen, you need national movements working on advocacy, and the NAACP culminated this march with a, a, a lobbying day on Capitol Hill, where leaders of the NAACP went door to door. I myself met with three senators and a congressperson, and are you know, bringing our Torah scroll with us to demand accountability on some of these issues, especially the hot button issue right now is the Voting Rights Advancement Act, um, to to restore the Voting Rights Act for which people died and bled in 1965, that was gutted by the Shelby decision. So, so I do think. Uh, um, people might say what they want about national organizations being slow and moderate, but there is a kind of effectiveness that they can have, but we don't think that's the only ingredient in the recipe of uh, fixing our racial problems. You know that 
person-to-person contact that you were describing about that Vietnamese family, it can, if it doesn't go to hatred, it can go to real alliance where people really get it, that we are one. I mean, mm-hmm. we, everybody wakes up in the morning with exactly the same desire. They want to be loved. They want to be valued. You know, I don't care if you're a Muslim or you're a Hindu or who you are. And uh, we all have that desire. And, I, I, you know, sometimes these personal contacts, it's like when you bring kids together early in their lives and they have an experience of each other, which is so often what we're seeing with our young I don't know what they're called now. There's always a new name. Millennials, Gen, this is Y, Zs, and whatever. You know, that with those people who have experience with one another have a tendency to see each other as real. And Mm -hmm. when we do that, there is a whole shift. So I'm very happy to hear what you're saying. It's doing my heart good to see that this thrust is happening and that you've been able to have alliances with people in Ferguson as well. Um, you know, that it's kind of from the outside, it, it looks very polarizing. And, um, you know, we're not going to change our world if we're fragmented. Yeah. I think that that's a, I think that that's a huge part of what we are going to need to do is, is just relate to each other. That's actually one of the local projects in which we're engaged here in Chicago is an interfaith partnership um, with, uh, you know, Jews and Christians, you know, people on, on, you know, black, white, and brown, to sit down intentionally and talk about race and have an opportunity to bring some of these things about what you often whisper out into the open to build those real relationships so that meaningful work and partnership can grow out of it. You know, we are, believe it or not, running out of time. I'd like to ask you one very quick question. And what about Muslims? I don't understand. Uh, I mean, general, what, <laughs> no, I mean, I know I threw this at you, and you have two minutes. But uh, what is the work that you Reform Jewish rabbis are doing to try to build bridges in the Muslim community? You know, we've been working on this in the Reform movement um, really since the wake of September 11th. Um, we have some national structures and, and um, resources to help us each partner with local communities and build bridges of understanding. And that's, that's something which is pretty deeply ingrained in what we do. I know we have a, a lovely connection with uh, the Downtown Islamic Center here in Chicago, and it's one of the, the many things on our justice plate. Um, I think Muslims are, are victims of pre- religious prejudice and stereotype. You only need to look at the Republican candidates to see how vicious it is. And, yeah. uh, and, and you know, that's another place where we as Jews want to sort of stand by and be partners and, and stand up against that kind of uh, terrible hatred. And, uh, you know, one of the tricky questions, of course, has been Israel, because ever since the uh, antagonism between Israel and its Arab neighbors, you know, I've, I have felt like Jews have been in this crossfire of having to hate Arabs and Muslims. And <laughs> I know not all Jews feel this way. Yeah, I... I uh that's never been anything I've preached. Uh, <laughs> you know, there, there, it's one thing to have governments not get along. It's another thing to hate entire races or nations of people because of that. I would say that would be a mistake. Wouldn't it? And also how important it would be to start seeing that we all have to share our land, our world. I mean, we are a common humanity. Well, it has been a real pleasure interviewing you. We have just a couple of minutes. James is going to be in. No, I'm going to be announcing what we're doing on our next show because actually we are so pre-recorded that I don't have anything ready for him. Uh, and the, but so, so I'll definitely come back. 
to uh, you know to say goodbye and thank you uh, after I talk about what we're doing next time. But I would like to say that if there's anything that you're doing that you think our audience should know about, would you please let us know? Just like with Sakina Yakubi and her uh, TED Talk, um, I think that what you're doing is so important: breaking the mold, breaking down religious intolerance, having spirituality connect us rather than divide us. Uh, this is something that is so close to my heart, uh, and I, I really ask you to think of us as a resource that you can use. Great. I appreciate that. And everyone should, should find out if there are senators or congresspeople to start are, are in favor of the Voting Rights Advancement Act, and that's the, the number one place to start is to get our politicians on board and to make sure that in this next presidential election, everyone has the opportunity to vote. Oh, absolutely, because if we don't, you know who's going to get elected. So let me say what we're doing next week, which, of course, isn't next week. It's a week from the sh- when our show is airing. <laughs> and what I think we're doing is I think what we're talking about is tackling the NFL and t- tackling the culture of violence in our country and in our world. And, uh, you know, what I'd like to say is tackle the NFL, just turn it off. You know, we as interrevolutionaries, just like we have to do something about our carbon footprint and we've got to get out there and, and demand that there are voting rights that, are, that people have them. And that is similarly, we can vote with our hands and turn off the TV when we see the absolute disregard of the health and well-being of the players in the NFL, the concussions and all the other uh, conditions. It's like, well, you know, the NFL has to be brought to account. But we also have to look at the violence in our homes, in our families, in our hearts, and in our minds and see why is blood sports so popular in our world? And where is that coming from? And we have to take accountability for the competitiveness, the non-cooperation. I mean, at the bottom of all of this, when we look at what uh, Seth and his uh, comrades and partners did was that they came together around something that's bigger than any one of us, that we are a human race and we have human needs and we need to work together. And that spirit is not what you see in competitive sports. And we see how extreme it can get. So uh, I don't know exactly what we're going to be doing on the show because it's a little bit in advance, but that's what we are going to be tackling uh, on October 8th, so don't forget to join us. And I want to come back and thank Seth uh, for being with us today. You were a delight, and I'm very, very appreciative that you took your time at this very, very busy time in your life to come and be on Interrevolutionary Radio and on Interrevolutionary TV. <laughs> you, you'll see yourself there, uh, because I think that this has been very enlightening and heartwarming. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Take care. Happy New Year. No, not Happy New Year. Have a good, healthy, and conscious New Year. A meaningful and just New Year, too. Take care. Yeah, thank you. Okay, take care now. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Interrevolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.